Our focus uh, the last couple weeks has been the Eucharist as sacrifice. And last week we began to look at Jesus, the Lamb of God. We've been doing a survey study throughout the Older Testament, the prophets, David, and so on, and finally coming to that place of beholding the Lamb, the Lamb of God. And we've been considering the matter of the incarnation, the incarnation of God, that God Himself condescended into our alienated human existence in order to lay hold of it and to bind it into union with Himself. Oneness with Himself. His sacrifice. And how that sacrifice will entail His coming to battle sin at close quarters. You may recall from last Sunday, we, we quickly reviewed the temptations that He faced in the wilderness following His baptism by John the baptizer. So he would battle sin at close quarters. He, he would not come to relate with us from a distance, but he relates with us very closely and very intimately. His willingness, therefore, to go face to face with the power of sin and to even come under its sway. And he willingly submitted himself to the lure of sin's temptation and effectively exploded it from within. Undermined it. Defeated it completely. And this is the strategy of Jesus, the Lamb of God. The God who became human to address the perversion of sin and the destruction of death. And He introduces us to the notion, to the idea, and to the image of a God, watch this, a God who suffers in absolute solidarity with afflicted creatures. Like you and me. And redeems them through that suffering. And in turn makes our own suffering redemptive in purpose. Isn't that incredible? Whatever struggle you may be facing right now, whatever suffering you may be going through, He has given Himself to walk with you through that in absolute solidarity and take something that would seem so meaningless, such as suffering and pain, and give value to it. He did not intend the suffering. He did not bring the suffering. He did not cause the suffering. But He steps into the suffering with you and me and redeems it, gives it redemptive meaning and purpose. As only He can. Even our suffering and pain is not wasted as far as He is concerned. And is not wasted time. All of this was, however, but an anticipation of the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb. The final enemy, and this is where we left off last Sunday, the final enemy that had to be 
defeated. If God and His human family could once again sit down together in the easy fellowship of a festive meal, as we've looked at at the very beginning of this series, the sacred meal, the banquet, the festive meal, if that was going to be able to happen again, the final enemy that had to be defeated was death itself. In a very real sense, death and the fear of death stand behind all sin. And so then Jesus had to journey into the realm of death and through sacrifice undo it and twist it back to life. The undoing of death. Innumerable heroes in the course of human history had tried to conquer that realm by using its weapons and fighting violence with violence and hatred with hatred. Fire with fire, if you will. But this strategy was and still is, as we know if we're honest with ourselves, hopeless. The battle plan of the Lamb of God was instead subversive and paradoxical. In the extreme, He would conquer death. How? By dying. Conquering death by dying. From Jesus' first appearance, the Spirit of the fallen world, that is the spirit and the arena of death, opposed him. Herod, remember the story? Shortly after Jesus was born, Herod sought to stamp him out. Even when he was just an infant. The scribes and Pharisees plotted against him and hunted him down, those religious leaders. The temple establishment feared him. The Romans saw him as a threat to their order. And at the climax of his life and ministry, Jesus came into Jerusalem, David's city, the site of the temple, riding not on a fine charger, not on a great stallion in the manner of a worldly warrior, but what? On a humble donkey. He arrived in the place where his enemies were most concentrated, and he had every intention of fighting, but his weapon would be the very instrument on which his opponents would put him to death. The cross. And on the cross, Jesus said these words, among other words, but He said these words. Read them together with me nice and loud. They're on the screen for us. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Luke, interestingly, that's Luke 23, verse 34. Luke 
was the only one to record this prayer. And this is not just Jesus inventing some sort of a lame, trifling excuse for His executors. Father, please forgive them. They don't have a clue. They don't know what they're doing. No, they really do not know what they are doing. And the English here, the English translation that is in our Bibles of this word forgive is really not expressive enough of the original that Jesus expressed. Remit is what Jesus was getting at. Father, remit their sin. Dismiss it. Send it away. Those words render a better and truer sense of what Jesus was interceding for here. Because He was interceding. This was a prayer. Father, forgive them. Remit this sin. Send it away. Dismiss it. They don't know what they're doing. The Romans, you see, had crucified tens of thousands of people before Jesus' time. Tens of thousands before the time of Christ. To the best of our knowledge, we do not know a name of a single one of those tens of thousands. Think about that. Tens of thousands crucified prior to Christ and to the best of our historical knowledge, we don't know the name of a single one. And this was exactly their intention with Jesus. That He would be snuffed out. Made absolutely unknown. Forgotten. Crucifixion was a particularly cruel, sadistic, and dehumanizing method of putting someone to death. And it was a, as, as public as the Romans could make it. So that all the, those passing by could mock and ridicule as they did. The message was clear. This object pinned up before you is not one of you. He's not fit to die like a human being. Not part of the human community. No more than a beast or an insect. Fit only to be discarded like trash and obliterated from human memory. That was the message they were conveying in Christ's crucifixion. He was not even given the dignity of dying like a human being. And this intercession that Jesus carries out, Father, forgive them, is not only for those who carried out the sentencing and the crucifixion of Jesus, but it is for all humankind. 
every one of us, beloved. Jesus intercedes with these words. A people, you and me, a people who have no insight into the profound mystery of God's salvation. Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what's going on here. Jesus speaks these words not as a request, but He speaks them with divine authority. The grammar here is in the imperative. This is, this is a command. He might have prayed for justice and just retribution, but His love rises above His suffering and sacrifice. And He prays for pardon for His enemies. Such love exceeds comprehension and yet reveals the source, loved ones, it reveals the source of our redemption and our pardon. Dying on a Roman instrument of torture, Christ Jesus, the human God, allowed the full force of the world's hatred and brokenness and dehumanization and dysfunction to wash over Him and to spend itself on Him. All of it. And He responded not in kind with violence and resentment, but He responded what? With forgiveness. He therefore took away the sin of the world and to use uh, the language that we often use in our worship, He swallowed it up in divine mercy. All of the sin of the world. Over His cross, Pontius Pilate had placed a sign announcing in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Eugedorum. Jesus, King of the Jews. Though Pilate intended this as a mockery, it was in fact the fulfillment of a prophecy. An essential aspect of the hope of Israel was that one day a king in the tradition of David and Solomon, who we looked at in recent weeks, would rise up and take his place in Jerusalem and deal definitively with the enemies of Jerusalem. And this is precisely who Jesus was and what Jesus did. But what an odd, peculiar, unexpected sort of king he was. Yeah? Conquering Israel's enemies, how? Through nonviolence. Disempowering them by refusing to respond to them in kind. 
how peculiar. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus compares Himself to a mother hen who longed to gather her chicks under her wing. Would you read it together with me? It's on the screen for us. Luke 13.34. Lift your voices nice and loud. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. The cry of the maternal heart of God. The maternal heart of God. We refer to God as our Father quite often, and so we should, rightly so. But He is also very much a mother to us. In fact, in the original language, if you look at the grammar of the the references to God, to Yahweh, throughout the Scriptures and into the New Testament, there, there is no gender given at all to Him. He carries both of these natures. The mystery of who He is. I know that there's been debate and conflict and controversy over translations of the Bible that begin to refer to God as she and he and so on. But really, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that there is no gender that's given when he is referenced. She's... But we use this because it helps us in our English, of course, and in our other mother tongues in order to refer to him and ease of communication. He is both father and mother, and here is a picture we see of his mother heart, his maternal heart. And loved ones, this is much more than a mere sentimental image that Jesus gives us here in Luke. Jewish tradition claimed that Jewish people were under God's wings. And when a Gentile was converted, they too were brought under the wings of God's presence. The Older Testament also portrays God as as an eagle hovering over its offspring. We see that reference in Deuteronomy and other Older Testament passages. Protecting Israel under His wings while also terrifying Israel's enemies. This is but one image of God's love for His people. This image. A mother hen. An eagle. And Jesus here applies this divine role to Himself. Referring to the gesture of a mother hen when a fire is sweeping through the barn in order to protect her chicks, she will sacrifice herself gathering them under her wing and using her own body as a shield from the fire. And though her own life might be taken, the chicks will often survive because of how she has shielded them. What an incredible picture 
on the cross, Jesus used, as it were, His own body as a shield, taking the full force of the world's hatred and violence. God becoming human, living, serving, nurturing, loving, and dying. He entered into close quarters with sin and allowed the heat and the fiery fury of sin to destroy Him even as He protected us. So with this metaphor, this picture in mind, we can see with special clarity why the first Christians, our ancestors, associated the crucified Jesus with the suffering servant of Isaiah, which we've also looked at a couple weeks ago. By enduring the pain of the cross, Jesus did indeed bear our sins. By His wounds, we were indeed, say it, healed. And that is why the sacrificial death of Jesus is pleasing to the Father. Though it has in recent years been lampooned and ridiculed in a satirical kind of way as somehow this story advocating a type of divine child abuse by a bloodthirsty Father God. Loved ones, are we really to imagine that John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that that actually means that God so hated the world that He killed His only begotten Son as some would have us imagine today? This is a teaching that is out there and quite prominent and perhaps you've come across it. Perhaps you hold to it yourself. No, not at all are we to understand this Scripture this way. To impose this kind of sacrificial appeasement upon Christ's sacrifice on the cross is to paganize our, our atonement theory. Our atonement theology. This was the way pagans looked at their gods. The doctrine of atonement stands at the heart of of the Christian faith. And if you picked up our note-taking outline today with the weekly as you came in, and I trust you did, and if you didn't, be sure to get one of these, because I so wanted you to get this that I actually wrote this next portion out in that outline so you could have it for yourself. Because I want the understanding around this to be crystal clear, at least as clear as I can make it, with the help of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the atonement stands at the heart of the Christian faith and its proclamation. The event of the crucifixion, hear me please, the event of the crucifixion is not God punishing His Son. 
If we arrive at that conclusion, we know that we have not just made a trivial error that could easily be corrected, but a major blunder. And yet, historically, this is often how the story of Jesus and the cross is understood. It is not God punishing His Son. In in believing it this way, and understanding the story this way, we have portrayed God not as a generous Creator and good and benevolent loving Father. He is. But instead, we have portrayed Him as an angry despot. And this idea belongs not to the biblical picture of God. It belongs to pagan beliefs. In the ancient Near East, in the Older Testament days, this was how the pagan gods dealt with their their people. But God was seeking to show His people that this is not how I operate. The Father sent His Son into God-forsakenness. Into the morass of sin and death. Not because He delighted in seeing His Son suffer. He did not get some cheap thrill out of that. But rather, because He wanted His Son to bring the divine light into the darkest place. And to there stand in absolute solidarity with humankind in their sin and in their suffering. In our sin and in our suffering. It is not the agony of the Son in and of itself that pleases His Father, but rather, it is the Son's willing, self-giving love and obedience in offering Himself in sacrifice in order to take away the sin of the suffering world and undo death. Are you tracking with me here? The cross is not what God inflicts in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as He forgives. I'm going to say that again. The cross is not what God inflicts in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as He forgives. And this is an essential and an enormous clarification for us. At the cross, the Son does not act as an agent of change upon the Father. For indeed, God is immutable. He's unchanging. As Hebrews tells us, He is the same today, yesterday, forever.
The cross is not an attempt by Christ to change how God looks at us. but to change how we look at God. At the cross, the Son is not pacifying an angry Father. The cross is not where Jesus changes God, but where Jesus fully reveals God. He reveals God as loving Savior. And He re-established justice. That is to say, the right relationship between divinity and humanity. He did it by going all the way to the bottom of the muck of sin. Drinking it to the dregs in order to find and extricate the pearl of great price humankind, you and me, which had fallen in. It was not the suffering of the Son that the Father took pleasure in, but rather the Son's willingness to lay Himself down in sacrifice to make that downward journey. And this is what Isaiah gets at when he says in Isaiah 53, the Father was satisfied. It's not the expression of an angry father that abuses his son and gets some thrill out of it in order to forgive. He was satisfied in the willingness of Jesus to fully express the heart of God to humanity in enduring the cross and in overcoming and undoing death and sin. This human, Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is God, descends down into death, entering by His own terrible death into the death of every human. Your death, my death, For every time the one human nature we share, we share human nature together. And every time the one human nature we share dies in one of our fellow humans, we all of us die again. And He dies with us. With the passing of such a dear brother such as David Bunkman, There is a measure of death that happens in all of our hearts. Why? Because that is how we are made and designed. There is a oneness we share, a community we share together as humankind. And when one dies, in a very real sense, we all die again. And because Jesus came, He dies with us. And further still, Jesus, the Lamb of God, descends into all of our hells. All of our hells that we experience. One of the pastors of the first Christians, Athanasius was his name, 
says that Jesus keeps falling further than our hells and His descent is not slowed until He is beneath the deepest falling human down to the edges of non-existence to rescue us and to give the one human nature we all share permanence. He's not stingy with His kind of existence. He wants His fellow humans to participate in His never-ending divine life. Such powerful words from St. Athanasius. As a fellow human, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is our mediator and advocate made like His brothers and sisters in every way so that He might be One who rules and judges those whose existence and condition He understands from the inside out because He lived our human story with us in the most vulnerable and authentic and beautiful way. In Jesus, the Lamb of God, God has a mother. God has a betrayer. In Jesus, the Lamb of God, God has scars. God has wounds. God has memories. Memories of meals and laughter with His friends and cold nights huddled together against the desert air in cloaks. He recalls storms at sea and a grinding emptiness at the tomb of His friend, Lazarus. In Jesus, the Lamb of God, God knows hunger and thirst and loneliness and pain. In Jesus, the Lamb of God, God knows the human devastation of divorce and disease and death. In Jesus, the Lamb of God, the One like the Son of Man who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth is also one of us. In Jesus, the Lamb of God. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, discloses to us a God who rules all things by a humility. Please hear those words. He rules all things. Not not by a, 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 a mongering for power, He rules all things not by a a striving to control. He rules all things not by a clinging to some kind of dominance. All pagan ideas of God. He rules all things by a humility and a servanthood. We cannot even begin to grasp or comprehend. It goes so against the inclinations of our nature. Doesn't it? Because we seek to control. We grasp for power. We strive for influence and dominance. That's how we operate. Because that makes us feel safe and secure. And in control. And Jesus shows us a completely different way. He discloses to us a God 
who rules all things by a humility and a servanthood that we cannot even begin to comprehend. His power is disclosed in weakness and poverty by sacrifice and surrender and trust. And He is now forever with the Father in human flesh for us. And we are there close to the heart of the Father in Jesus, the Lamb of God, as His body. The body of Christ. We are mystically one with God in the humanity of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And God is one with us humans in the Son and loves us. Such incredible mystery here. Jesus, the Lamb of God, remains always the servant of His beloved cosmos and everything and everyone in it. And that is what makes Him truly King and Lord and Ruler of all. Amen.